Uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion, click on Live, brings us up by GPS. And then in that, you can also get the sermon notes and the verses and all the study questions as well. Uh, talking about the Seder meal that we're doing, it's, it's something we've been planning to do for a while, but last year we tried to do it, but apparently you have to book the, these rabbis a year and a half out. And we didn't realize that. So we actually booked this a year and a half ago to get someone to come to lead the Seder meal for us. I mean, there's gonna, there's gonna be lamb, wine, all the, all the food of the bitter herbs that the Jews would have used to understand the bitterness of their slavery, uh, in Egypt. And so that we'll understand all that, what they went through on all their Passovers. The important thing is, you need to sign up. Uh, we, we're only gonna have so much room to do this. And if we, if we only have this room to do it in, that's only gonna be like 140 people. We have way more than that that not only come to Element, but actually come to our Good Friday services. So, sign up, mark down how many people are, if you sign up, you better show up. I'm gonna know who you are, and I'll be calling you going, seriously, what's the deal, right? Because we're gonna have to cut off. Now, what we'd really like to do is we'd like to get, you know, one of those big wedding tents. It's like 40 by 80. And like stick it out here in the parking lot and actually be able to get 300 or so people inside of that tent and do it all together so we can have a lot of people show up for it. So if you know somebody who are like, oh, I had to buy a tent for my wedding and it's 40 by 80. Anybody? Really? No one in any service yet has said, oh, I know. Anybody know somebody who like owns or runs like the party rental place, like the tent store? If you know somebody like that, he raises his hand. Really? Really? I know them. Anyway, so if you if you know them, uh, let us know. Maybe call them for us. See if we can get a good deal because it's very expensive to rent a gigantic tent with sides to put you all in. And, and somebody even said if we did that, we should keep it for Easter Sunday morning because then we could have like bigger, which kind of be cool too. I don't know if I want to do service in the parking lot. Whatever. Okay, we got two two Super Bowl parties going on today that you are invited to. If you have nowhere to go and you're going to watch the game at home alone, don't. Get up and go to one of these houses, 4031 Sarah Court. It's out in Orchid. Uh, go there, hang out, watch the game there. Or uh, 1301 Fessler, uh, that's Jason Harris's house. If you know where Home Motors is, if you make a left where Home Motors is and you drive straight, you'll actually run into their garage. And it's actually happened. Not on purpose, but like someone's like, bam, right in their garage. Wake up middle of the night, car in the garage, not theirs, not good. So uh, it's right, 1301 Fessler, they, Jason said the grill's going to be on all day. Bring your own meat, side dish to share, whatever you want to drink. Apparently just bring all of your food with you and Jason will eat it for you when you show up at his house. Uh, but he'd love to have you guys show up. So if you don't have anywhere to go and you're thinking about it or watching the game, and just don't, don't do it alone. God intends for us to do things in community. So go and show up to one of those houses and hang out with people who love Jesus and apparently like football as well. Why don't you guys stand me? You're reading to God's Word. By the way, I might be coming by your house. Your, your wife put a Facebook post up about all the stuff she's having. Some. Yeah, you just say that when I show up. Genesis one twenty eight says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us to understand the proper stewardship of dominion that you have placed under us as your people and that we would properly reflect who you are in your great glory by how we interact with the rest of the creation that you have placed us within. Amen. Have a seat. 
So this is week four of the book of Genesis. I will probably tell you every week which week we're on. Uh, because of our culture, there are certain things that we must actually cover as we go through the book of Genesis because we need to know what the scriptures teach about them. And I kept going back and forth about what I'm going to talk to you about today. Uh, I thought about when I was going to do it. I'm actually neurotic. If I have to run like five places, I'll drive to the bottom of it and then make my way back like this because I hate backtracking. And it's like Rain Man wants to go shop at Kmart for his underwear. I can't backtrack. Okay, so I just and so I thought if I finish chapter 1, I'll have to come back and then talk about this. So we're just throwing it in right here so I don't have to backtrack because I'm a little crazy. You might think this is a whole side note, but it's not. If you have been here for the last three weeks understanding God's vibrant creation, what he has done, this is going to make perfect sense to you. If you missed some of the messages of the last three weeks, ourelement.org, download them, and you'll be able to get on the same page with us. Today we're going to talk about environmentalism. And what we are supposed to look like as Christians regarding the environment. I'm not going to tell you what you should do, how that works out, but I'm going to tell you how God views it and calls us to steward things. So far in Genesis, we have seen who God creates everything. We see why God creates things. Next week, you see God take the man and the woman he creates and puts them in the middle of his loaded creation. And he commands them to do some things, to care for creation, to manage it, to lovingly use it, and to creatively order it. He gives words of loving service and thought use from day one of man which is kind of like day six in the creation they're in intimate relationship with their environment around them now i think environmentalists have a few things right and i think they got a lot of things wrong but we got to understand this all in the context of god's creation so let me be clear as we start this out so you know a little bit of who i am and what i think i think some of the crazy things in the environmental movement are a, we pass laws in our country that we can't use normal light bulbs anymore. We've got to use CFLs, compact fluorescent lights. And then our EPA comes along and says, oh, they're so toxic, we can't even make them in our own country, so we've got to go overseas to buy them. That's just stupid. All right, That's just stupid to me. I believe trees are a renewable resource. Statistically speaking, we have more trees in the United States than we did 200 years ago. I believe it is okay to eat animals, just not abuse them. I do not believe the earth is overcrowded and we are running out of resources. I think those are scare tactics put out by people who want to go and try and control your freedom. I do not think we need to get rid of our houses and go live in tents made of hemp, even though we might really enjoy it when they burn down, right? Like, woo! Who burned down my tent? But what do environmentalists actually have right in this? What they have right is that we cannot live independently of the world that God has placed us in. We are intimately connected with the rest of creation, but we are connected by God. And God has made certain things in this vibrant creation for us to steward. We are to lovingly and constantly move forward with this creation to steward it rightly. This is central to the scriptures, glorifying God and stewarding what he has made. And in a sense, every person who calls themselves a Christian should be in a proper sense an environmentalist that cares for the environment that God has made. Now, in 1967, there's a Princeton professor, his name was Lynn White, and he wrote an article that's published in Science uh, Magazine called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. In a nutshell, what he basically says is that the real problem, the real danger to the environment comes from the Christian faith. Now, this is what normally happens when people who don't know anything about Christianity try and tell you what Christianity believes. This goes from anywhere between Al Gore to Oprah to half the crazies on Christian TV. They all just really don't know what they're talking about. Most of the divide today and how the environmentalist Christians can directly or indirectly be related to this guy in this article. 
And since this time, Christians seem to go all, let's worship Mother Earth or let's just watch it all burn. And no one gives a reasonable response as to what God expects of his people. Lynn White goes to Genesis 1.28 that says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. White says along with Christianity comes this idea that we don't, that Christians don't see themselves as part of nature, they see themselves as being above it. That nature is not sacred, it's just disposable. Now, as Christians, we are part of nature, but we actually are above it. We're to steward it for God. He says that Christians believe that nature is just for people to exploit and to use in the Christian mindset. He calls this selfish anthropocentrism. And he says that's what characterizes Christianity. And then he said it's that system of thought that's the real problem for anybody who's concerned about the planet. And he says, and Christians have now infected everybody else with their way of thinking. And as I said, this article written in 1967 becomes the central point and argument about Christianity and environmentalism all the way to today. If you read really anything about this topic, people are constantly referring back to this article by Lynn White in regard to the environmental movement. Uh, now, again, most people don't know a lot about Christianity, and yet they're highly influenced by that article, and they see Christianity as an obstacle to caring about nature. Now, let's contrast this. We have a guy named Tim Keller. I love Tim Keller. You should, if you ever see a book by Tim Keller, pick it up, read it. Great guy. Uh, Tim Keller writes about a guy named Stuart Pym. Stuart Pym is a professor of conservation ecology at Duke. He wins the Heineken Prize, which is kind of like the Nobel Prize for Earth Sciences. And so Pym is not just a teacher. He's actually a kind of champion for endangered species, and he's a Christian. What this looks like is in Brazil right now, there's a species called the golden lion tamarind. It looks like this. I actually, years ago, he said, how cute, right? I got this, I got this little stuffed animal. It's like this, but his name is Omar. And it looks, and it's, and it's one of these. I had no idea what it was, but it, it, it's kind of cool. Now, you go back to the 40s, and what would happen when you found out a species was going extinct is people would hop on a plane, get their guns, and go, let's shoot them, because there's only a couple left, and I'm going to give you the last one and stuff it and hang it on my wall, right? That's not how we steward creation. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not what we do. What Pim does is he has now acquired land in Brazil so this species isn't wiped out and so it can flourish. He is interviewed by the New York Times about his work. At the end of the interview, they ask him kind of a throwaway question, not really expecting him to answer it. And they ask him this, are you religious? This is his response. I'm actually a believing Christian. And Christians have an obligation to care for the planet because it was made by God and does not actually belong to us. So we cannot simply fail to care for oceans or forests or creatures, that would be to fail to fulfill our obligations to God. That is the exact opposite of what Lynn White said Christians believe. People like Stuart Pym say their concern for the earth is not blocked by their faith. It's actually produced and triggered by their faith. They don't worship the planet. They worship the God who made the planet and believe the mandate from Genesis 1 was for you and I to steward. Dominion, subdue, radah, kabosh, it means responsibility and stewardship. That's what we're supposed to do. I believe Christianity, when rightly understood, actually offers the best single perspective from which to view the whole idea of how we're supposed to care for the human race, care for the planet by the human race. I think it's important to know and understand this so we can be faithful and biblical as we follow Jesus. I think it's also important because in the Bible, there's this vision about creation and how creation reflects the glory of God and we're to steward this. And when this vision is rightly understood, it takes our breath away. And it helps us to really love God more. And that vision needs to be articulated by God's church, by his people. 
You know, in the Old Testament, there's actually no word for nature. There's just the word creation. And I love the word creation because it carries a certain theological emphasis to it. Because if there's a creator, then that means that we are creation and we are not that creator. The second word he uses is the word, cre- the word creature. This is, if you're in deep south, you'd probably say critter, right? But, you know, we'll say, we'll say creature. These are beings that are given the gift of life by their creator in order to reflect and participate in something glorious. And we even sing this song at Element, this old hymn, and it goes, All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing, Hallelujah. Creatures are meant to reflect and praise the glory of God. The Bible says that human beings are part of this creation, but we're a special part. We are to reflect in a unique way the image of God in a way that no other part of creation does. We are creatures gifted by our Creator with the capacity to reason, to choose, to communicate, to invent, to steward His creation. Now open your Bible to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm 24. The scriptures are very clear about a central truth that transcends politics and legislation about who the world belongs to. Psalm 24. Verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 50. This idea gets expressed over and over and over in the scriptures. Psalm 50, verse 10 and 11 says this, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. The Bible is real clear on this. Who does the earth belong to? It belongs to God. Therefore, who does it not belong to? Us. Exactly. The earth belongs to God. People in our culture need to hear and understand this. It belongs to God. It's not Mother Nature or Gaia or the Force. Christianity teaches that the earth belongs to God. Open to Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament. Paul, again, comes along and makes a staggering claim about Jesus and creation. This is his letter to the, the church of Colossae and Colossians 1, 15, I'll let you go there. I hear you turning. That's a good thing. Colossians 1, 15 and 16, Paul says this, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says, There is not one square inch in all creation over which Jesus does not cry out, This is mine. Jesus is like, that's for me, that's for me, that's for me. Not one square inch. Jesus does not go, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. I made it. I care about that. Scripture is very emphatic on this point. And every bird that you hear and every tree that you see and every sunset you enjoy and every carpet of grass that you walk on with your bare feet, every blossom of every tree that makes you go, wow, that's beautiful. Every lung full of air you suck into your body was made by Jesus and for Jesus. And don't you think that says something about God's creation, how he feels about it? Absolutely. God made creation for us to steward and enjoy and to bring glory to Him as we steward and enjoy it correctly. The material world is a great thing. So many people want to go, oh, I gotta be more spiritual. I gotta be all spiritual and become a monk and live on a hill and don't interact. That's terrible. That's, this comes from an idea of called Greek dualism, where the, where the body is bad and the spirit is good. Plato once said, the body is the tomb of the soul. What a load of garbage. No. God creates physical matter as a good thing. That's what scripture teaches. That matter is not an accident of a bang that's just a reflection of a bigger bang. And Genesis 1 has this refrain, and God spoke, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. The climax of him creating all these things in Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
We are to love our world, not worship it. I mean, anybody here not love trees and sunsets and oceans and, and all those things? Anybody? Right, it's, it's awesome. They're great things. I mean, you get the joy of living in one of the most amazing places on the planet, California. I have been to a lot of other places on this planet. California is the best. All right. I love living in California. If I go somewhere, I'm like, thank God I'm going home. It's, the beauty of the central coast is really staggering. I mean, you ever drive down to Santa Barbara, you get around Gaviota when the, when the fog's not there, right? And you come around the corner and you see either, either a well breach or dolphins. Anybody ever see that when you come around there? Yeah, it's, it's staggeringly beautiful when you see these things. What does God think about whales? Psalm 104, verse 24 to 26. O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. When whales frolic in the sea, when they spout water, when they slap their tails, when they jump out and go splash, God loves that. God's like, yeah, that is my whale. Have you seen my creature? Woo! I mean, we go, we, we get little aquariums, we put them in our house, we, oh, look at our aquarium with their goldfish. You flush those things down the toilet, they still survive. It's like, oh, look at that. And then you go to the doctor's office, oh, look at their big aquarium. God makes the ocean and everything in it, and that's his aquarium because he loves watching his creatures play. That is a good God. Open to Psalm, or Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. When you get to the flood of Noah, after it, God makes a covenant and places a rainbow in the sky. This is after he destroys everything and he makes a covenant. And the covenant is not just with Noah. Genesis 9, verses 9 and 10 says this. God says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. A covenant is a binding promise of relationship. It's God saying, I'm going to redeem, I'm going to take care of, I'm going to watch over you. And that's remarkable. God makes a covenant, a relationship, a promise, not just with human beings, but with all living creatures. And unless anybody should miss that, that God says, I'm making a covenant with all creatures, he says it not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in that text. God has made a covenant freely out of his love, not just with Noah, not just with human beings, but with all living creatures. This is the idea behind Psalm chapter 19, where creation reflects God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech. What does that mean, the heavens declare the glory of God? It's not just a pretty saying. The word declares the word recount. Like if you, if you write your wife or husband a, a little letter, and you're like, oh, well, I love you. Let me count the ways. One, two, three. That's what it is. It's creation recounting all the ways of how good God is. Now, anybody know what, anybody have little kids in this room? You got small children? Anybody used to have small children? <laughs> anybody know someone who has small children? Okay, so that's all of us. Now, now what, what, do they, what do little kids do when they make little things and, you, and they hand them to you? What do people put on their refrigerator? Art, right? Oh, it's so nice. My little kid drew this, and I stick it on the fridge, and we, we call it. Is it great art? Yes. If your kids are in the room, yes. If your kids aren't in the room, no, right? <laughs> we, can, we can just be honest about it. As soon as kids can grab a, a little, little piece of crayon, they start making things, and they give it to you. You put it on your fridge as a piece of artwork. Now, would you sell it for a million dollars? Yes. Okay? You should. They can make another one. It's not that hard. We got crayons in the back. All right? It's not... 
It's not a big deal. I mean, don't be like, oh, no, don't be all sentimental. Seriously, we got to move at some point, and we could really use you to give some money when we got to move. So <laughs> sell it if anybody wants to buy it. But you love it because it's expression of the artist, and you love the artist, so you love their art. But imagine one of these kids grows up to be a, a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh. Then you begin to love the art for its own sake, for what it is. Some people even start by loving the art, and that makes them begin to love the artist. And then you look at this world that God has created, the great beauty that it is. And what kind of being creates art like this? A wonderful, great artist. That's an echo of the idea from Genesis 1 and Psalm 19. God creates, and it's good. It's not an accident. God wasn't like wondering if it's going to be good. It's good because God is good. It's an expression of who He is, and God is good in every single respect. We do not worship creation, but the Creator. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. The creation was to bring all people to the Creator by connecting all the dots and going, wow, this is an amazing Creator. Bring us wonder and gratitude and joy and thanksgiving. The, the artistry of it was to lead us to the artist. Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. A tree glorifies God simply because it's a tree and that's a wonderful thing. You ever wonder what God thinks about trees? Probably not, right? Heck, I didn't know we thought about whales, but I'll tell you what you think about trees. Deuteronomy 20, verse 19, God's giving some instructions to his people when warfare is going on. This is what he says. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? It's like God's going, stop chopping down my trees. I know you're really angry, and we're going to get to turn the other cheek when Jesus gets there, but for right now, be careful of my, keep your hands off my trees. It's not that you can't cut it down and build a house or make firewood, but don't you start cutting down just because you're mad at somebody. Oh, what's the matter you? He says, stop it. Care for creation around you. You cannot go into any part of creation and not see the expression of the Creator. It is Jesus' handiwork. It's God's refrigerator, so to speak. This is why so many people, and they're just astounded by creation, and they start to worship creation. And you just don't worship creation. Worship the artist who made the creation. The medieval church said there's two great books of God. There's the book of Scripture and the book of creation. In Psalm 19, it kind of talks about that. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's the first half. That's the book of God and creation. But farther on in the same psalm, in verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Those are meant to go together. You know, this book of creation, the book of scripture, together. And when we study creation, we sort of study God. And we protect creation, we protect the works of God, and we admire creation. We admire the goodness of God. And when someone loves creation in the proper, with the proper emphasis in the right way, it could be the day that somebody actually begins on the journey of loving their creator. Our world needs to understand this. This is God's creation. It is not just nature. It is creation. And Christianity teaches that we are stewards of that creation. We are not owners. We are not just users, though we do get to use it. We are not just consumers, though we do get to consume it. We are stewards. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. The word work can be translated to serve. The word to keep means to watch over or protect. You go to Deuteronomy 6.24 and it says, The Lord bless you and keep you. That's the same words as keep it. So the same thing that God's going to do for us in His great blessing, we're to do for God's creation. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. 
This is where you start getting the idea that Lynn White, he's just so wrong. Adam's job is not to exploit the garden, to destroy the garden. It was to make the garden flourish. In Psalm 8, verses 4 through 8, this is what it says. It says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Verse 6, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. See, human beings, we occupy a unique place in creation in that we uniquely reflect God's image. And we must understand the proper place of God as creator, you and I as creation, and then all the critters that come around us. The ecological movement, they have this term they use called biological egalitarianism. And that essentially means no species, including the human species, is worth any more than any other species. That there's no life of any creature, including humans, that's more than the life of any other creature. That is simply untrue. Simply untrue. Scripture clearly teaches that human beings have unique worth because we are made in God's image. Jesus echoes this. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Yes, you are. Human life is more valuable than the life of a bird. It's more valuable than the life of a little chimpanzee in the middle of Brazil. But that's not bad news for the bird or the chimpanzee. That's good news because we realize we are stewards of God's creation and when jesus says your heavenly father feeds them sometimes that's you feeding them being god's hands and feet open to exodus chapter 23 second book exodus 23 when you look at the old testament god kind of lays this out what it looks like ruling over creation stewarding for him what's supposed to look like it's really fascinating especially when you get to the place where you sabbath rest and what that's supposed to look like Part of the resting that nobody seems to look at in Exodus 23 goes like this. Six days, Exodus 23, 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. What's part of that reason? That your ox and your donkey may have rest. If you are a donkey, you hope your owner is a believer. It's, it's good news to the point that's good news for humans becomes good news for all of creation, becomes good news even for donkeys. It becomes good news. God tells Israel every seven years, leave the ground unplowed. It's to have a Sabbath. Why? Verse 10 in chapter 23. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the fields may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and your olive orchard. See, good news for God's people becomes good news for the poor, good news for the soil, good news for the wild animals. Deuteronomy is just a bunch of commands about judicial procedures and marriage. But in the middle of it, Moses throws this thing in there. It's kind of funny. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. He shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Now, some of you are thinking, I've kept that commandment my whole life. Didn't even know it, but I did. Awesome. You know, I'm, I'm so there. I'm so there. See, the, the farmers knew that they'd be able to squeeze out a little more profit if they can muzzle an ox while it's helped treading out this grain because grain's more expensive. Afterwards, you let them out. They'll eat the weeds and eat the grass, and it, and it saves you money. But God says, no, give the ox a break. Be generous with the ox. You let it have a little bit of grain, and you'll begin to understand the generosity that God gives to the rest of his creation. If you are an ox, you hope you are sold to an owner that loves God because they steward creation correctly. Now, one other thing that Christianity teaches that nobody else does, and this is very important, is that creation was under a curse. Creation may seem good at times to us, but it's not the way it was supposed to be. 
Francis Schaeffer wrote this, in part to respond to Lynn White all those years ago. He says, If you say there is no God at all, that nature is all there is, or if you make nature God and worship it, there's a problem. And the problem is there is beauty in nature, but there are also horrible things in nature. There is death and suffering in nature. Now, we all know this because we've all at some point probably had a pet that died. I used to have a dog. Her name was Zan. She was like 120 pounds. She bit most of you in this room as, as far as I know. You're probably glad she's dead. So you're like, yeah, yeah, that's good. But there's this old saying that goes, nature is red in tooth and claw. Nature is brutal. I was talking to somebody after the first service this morning, and they said that they and their husband were up uh, hiking in the mountains. And they said, as we were coming down this mountain, we realized the mountain doesn't care whether we live or die. We, could never, we don't care if we, they didn't care if we make it out of here. The mountain's just like, boom, it's just a mountain. See, if nature is all that there is, we need to stop romanticizing it. Because all there is, and it's governed by the law of survival of the fittest, then what's wrong with the extinction of a species? You know, it's just species against species. Well, that's just nature. You don't blame a mongoose for trying to kill off all the snakes. It's just what they do. And if human beings are just part of nature, you don't blame one part for trying to kill off another part. It's just what it does. But if we are actually creation and not nature, and we are made in the image of God and we're a steward, then it takes on a whole different meaning and mindset. We're to care for the creatures around us. The Bible says as human beings, we are also fallen. We are sinful, and creation itself has been affected by that fall. There's something wrong with our relationship to the creation around us, and it's going to produce thorns and thistles. It's not the way it was supposed to be. In Romans chapter 8, verse 19, Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You know who that's supposed to be? You and me. You and me. He says, because the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Francis Schaeffer said, as Christians, we should look for substantial healing in every area affected by the fall. Part of our job is to help nature flourish as God intends it to flourish. We are to honor what God has made in the right way. And what if in some way oxen and donkeys and trees are waiting for the sons of God to be revealed? Literally, for redeemed humanity to begin living as God intended for us to live as we care for the things that God has placed underneath our stewardship, waiting for us to actually live how he calls us to live. Romans 8.21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, if you believe there is no God and it's all just nature, that physical matter is all that there is, then it's just temporary. It's just temporary. And when the sun has converted enough hydrogen to helium and the earth becomes destroyed, and we're halfway there, by the way, in case you don't know that, when entropy prevails on the rest of the planet like it already does at the DMV, you know, when the timer goes off and it's all just kind of over, you know, and you're like, oh, that's, that's it, it's done, that's all there is. But Scripture tells us that God has set eternity in the hearts of human beings, that he has made a covenant with all of his creatures, and that creation is not going to be destroyed, it is meant to be redeemed. And what does that look like? Isaiah gives a beautiful picture of this. Isaiah 55, 12 and 13 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills before you shall break into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. In a very symbolic way of saying, all the thorns and the thistles and the briars turn into trees. Beautiful, glorious trees. It seems that part of the Bible's story is told around the story of trees. In the beginning, there's this tree of life that's, that's in the garden. Then there's this garden that's full of trees, and we can eat from all of them, and they're pleasing and, and good for food. No curse yet. And the very first sin of human disobedience becomes one uh, when we sin and one of God's trees. You know, in the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, the tree of life makes this return. 
and you know, with all these little clusters of fruit on it, we're told on that day, you know, produce a crop every month, 12 crops, you know, during the year. That's simply a picture of creation working right, of abundance, of flourishing. It says in Revelation 22, 2 and 3, the leaves of that tree went for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. This whole idea of all coming together redeemed creation. But between that tree in Genesis and the tree in uh, Revelation, there's another tree. And this is the one that Jesus hangs on. In Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's a very old saying. And Jesus hung on a tree. And he rises for redemption of not only us, but all of creation. And when he died on that tree, the curse begins to die with him. When he rises from the grave, the new creation begins in him. In him. I really love that after the resurrection, Mary Magdalene's walking around in the garden and she runs into Jesus and doesn't realize it's Jesus and it says she thought he was the gardener. I really like that because in a sense, he is. You know, for the creator is the redeemer and the creation will be redeemed, not destroyed. And he is a gardener and he lovingly cares for the place that he has made. And this is the story that our world hopes for, even when it doesn't even know it that we are to live and love and worship a God who bought and brought us redemption. And part of that redemption is you and I learning how to be proper gardeners. Again, where creation waits for you and I to do what we are actually meant to do and to care for and to steward and to live in creation the right way as redeemed humanity. This is actually one of the reasons we bring you to communion every single week. When you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us, you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. That reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. This whole idea that he has redeemed us, and so we live as a redeemed creation, living full lives as he intends us to. And when we begin to live that way, it is great news for the entire planet that we live upon. It's great news for the entire creation. As far as your eyes can see, heaven to earth, it's good news for all of that because our God is good. The band's going to come up and do a couple songs. These songs will kind of reflect what we talked about this morning as well. And So we invite you to worship God by taking communion. Uh, by singing these songs, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, maybe you've never saw it this way and you're like trying to figure out what proper stewardship looks for, looks like for you. And you're like trying to get your head around that. Or maybe you just have a prayer about anything. They would love to pray with you if something you want to pray about, uh, burdens, needs, whatever. They're offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then simply part of our worship. So we give that opportunity every single week. Uh, at the end of first, there were some donut holes and coffee in the back. I don't know if they're still there or not. They're probably gone because, like vultures, not you guys, those people. <laughs> Sometimes I think I'm funny. I'm not. Um, <laughs> we invite you guys to hopefully meet some other people and gather in fellowship because part of redeemed creation is you and I having redeemed relationships with each other again. I mean, if you're going to watch the Super Bowl today and you're going to watch it at home alone, don't. Don't. Go to one of these houses. Uh, get to know some people. Don't, don't just run around and do things alone because part of redeemed creation is learning how to live in fellowship with each other where you and I properly steward relationships with each other as well as the creation around us. Our God is a great God who has given us a great planet to live upon and he continues to call us into something greater and greater every single day. Let's pray. Part of this morning, we do ask as your creatures of our great God and King, that by how we live, we lift up our voice and sing with everything else around us as nature naturally reflects your glory and your goodness and speaks of who you are, that we'd begin to be a people who naturally speak 
of your goodness and who you are. That we would begin to lovingly manage and steward and care for the things that you have placed underneath us. That we do realize that we can use and consume, but we're not just meant to be users and consumers. But meant to be those who see your creation in the right way. And that wouldn't be just something we say and believe inside this little room. It would be something that we wholeheartedly live for as we walk outside these walls. For God, we know that how we live the lives that you have graciously given to us in front of other people means so much more than what we look like inside this room. So teach us to lovingly serve and honor you as we steward the creation you have placed underneath us properly reflecting our great God who is a great gardener as well as our great shepherd. Father, we thank you for loving us and giving us the great pleasure of being part of your creation and a unique and special part. Have us reflect all that back to you. Amen.